Welcome to Album Clash, the podcast in which we take two albums that share a connection and pit them against each other inside the ring of death. Two albums enter, only one may leave. Metaphorically. This is Album Clash. Hello, this is Album Clash. I'm a loser, baby, so why don't you kill me? And I am still Kev. <laughs> you didn't answer my question. <laughs> Hello, welcome to Album Clash. And uh, second part in the final clash in our beef season between Blur and Oasis. Last week, I went through Blur's The Great Escape. This week, Kevin will be taking us through Oasis's seminal album, What's the Story, Morning Glory, from 1995. But before all that, should we do our Video Killed the Radio Star segment? I think we should, because I'm very excited about this one. Yeah, so this was my choice. And I want to talk about the video to Fell in Love with a Girl by the White Stripes. Kev, what are your recollections of seeing this video for the first time? So when I first saw this video, it absolutely blew me away. For for those who've never seen it before, it's the band performing in Lego. (laughs) Yep. What's not to like about that? Exactly. So it's directed by Michel Gondry, uh, whose work we have spoken about before when we went through Daft Punk. And as Kev said, it it is mostly a frame-by-frame animation of the band performing in Lego. It's incredible. (laughs) I mean, as you said, it blew me away the first time I saw it. Yeah, and I think this, like the song and particularly the video, it definitely put the White Stripes on a huge number of people's radar. Because mm-hmm. again, heavy MTV2 rotation. It was a, it was a video that was all over the place at the time because there was nothing again, nothing like it. And yeah. everyone started paying attention to this to this band because the video was so amazing. Exactly, you've got a really innovative, striking video. You've got this track which is just guitar, drums, and vocals. It's what two and a half minutes long, which I know is a length that you're particularly fond of. Big fan of it. (laughs) And yeah, it launched them. It certainly brought them into my consciousness, let's say. I'd heard bits and bobs of them, but like, I think what also needs to be recognised as well is that obviously they have a very striking image and colour scheme that was prevalent with it throughout their work. And this video absolutely cements that as well. Definitely does. So just something I want to uh, bring out. So apparently... Before the single was released, Jack White contacted the Lego Corporation to try and agree a deal to do a basically a tie-in whereby with every copy of the single sold, there'd be a sort of promotional pack of Lego whereby you could have a Lego Jack White and a Lego Mega White. Oh my God, that would have been so good. It would have been amazing. Lego, so this is according to Jack White on the commentary of a, of a DVD around Michel Gondry's most famous works. Lego refused, and they told Jack White that we don't market our product to people over 12. Really? Hmm, okay. I think you do, but all right. Death Star. <laughs> yeah, well, how much is that? Like nearly 100 quid? It's about 300 quid. Fucking hell. Well more than 100 quid. Anyway, after the song became a success and the video, as you said, went into such heavy rotation, Lego contacted Jack White and tried to revive the deal. Jack White told them to do one. Oh, such a shame. (laughs) It is a shame (laughs) because it would have been brilliant. (laughs) And Lego White Stripes. (laughs) 
<laughs> I'd have been so, like absolutely bang into that. Can you imagine how much I'd go, go on eBay for as well? Exactly. But the video itself, I mean, even just the, li- the little touches. So the kid right at the start, you see building the Lego blocks mm-hmm. before it goes three, two, one. That's Michelle Gondry's son. But then you've got the the lit up sort of equalizer bit going up yeah. and down. It's just so so cleverly done. I love that video. Yeah, it's 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 a great video. So yeah, as always, we'll tweet the link to that. Uh, it's a great video. Surely you'll all have seen it. If not, treat yourself. Yeah, like it, I, I'm genuinely genuinely jealous of someone who hasn't seen it before because it is an absolute treat. It is indeed. All right, with that. Do you want to start taking us through What's the Story Morning Glory? I will do. So, uh, released on the 2nd of October 1995 and was recorded between March and June 95 at Rockfield Studios in Wales. It can be said, and there's no question about it, that this is the album that transformed Oasis into the behemoths they became. Um, the whole role with it, Country House Furore, massively helped with pushing awareness of the band, of sales of this album, of, of it becoming the album that it became, really. Yeah. So one thing we didn't talk about last week, and I'm not going to go back over the chart war, is that that even made headlines over in the States. So singles weren't released at the same time over in the States and Blur never had the following that Oasis had even at that time, but it made headlines over in the States as a big thing. So yeah, it absolutely, not just in the UK, but it cemented Oasis position as the leaders of this British invasion, if you like. Yeah, without question, it was certainly at the time I can remember there was talk of it being the second British invasion, which obviously refers back to the Stones and the Beatles going over in the 60s and having immense success in America. Yeah, precisely. So the album, well, followed up the success, which was critical and commercial of their debut album, Definitely Maybe. And the band reconvened at Rockfield to record the follow-up. Now, Rockfield was used for the abandoned first version of Definitely Maybe, which happened to be re-recorded in Cornwall. But obviously, they, they'd had some good vibes there, so decided, decided to go back. And the recording process itself was really fast. So they booked the studios for six weeks, but they only used them for three due to a fight, more of which later. I was going to say, you, you can't just leave that there. <laughs> I, I am going to come back to the fight because okay. it was quite the event. And Noel himself says the album was written in 12 days. So in the documentary uh, related to the album, Return to Rockfield, he said, I remember it just being really fucking fast and half the songs hadn't even been written when I got, when I got here. If you listen to the record, it's split into two halves. Half the songs have got a second verse. They were all written before I got here. And the rest of the songs are just the first verse twice and then maybe a third time. That was me getting in here and going, fuck it. Yeah, we'll come on to that. <laughs> yeah. The album itself has also been criticised by certain critics for contributing to the loudness war, which is essentially was down to the compression technique used by Owen Morris, the producer, who also produced the subsequent uh, Be Here Now. Well, and definitely maybe. And definitely maybe. Um, And and, sorry, I apologise for interrupting. You mentioned the abandoned version of Definitely Maybe that was recorded at Rockfield. If you watch the documentary Supersonic, which we've referred to before, Mm You actually hear the demos of, well, certainly cigarettes and alcohol and maybe one or two other tracks from that abandoned session. And it sounds nowhere near. And so it was when Owen Morris came on board and worked with Mark Coyle, the sound engineer, 
that's when the sound that became definitely maybe and came to define Oasis really was created. So, I mean, I haven't heard of the loudness war, but um, yeah, anyway. It's it's essentially like a number of albums kept turning it up to 11. And What's a Story is considered one of these. Although when I look down the list, and if you do go onto Wikipedia to look up the loudness war, um, a number of albums that were criticised for this compression and for being really loud, I, I really like. So two of the albums were Songs for the Deaf. Brilliant album. Which I fucking love. Yep. And the Arctic Monkeys debut. Brilliant album. Yeah, so I'm all right with the loudness. I mean, it is a loud album. It's also a shit name for a war. I know. Did Billy Joel sing about that one? <laughs> Rock and roll and loudness wars. I can't take it anymore. One of your personal favourite songs, I believe. Oh, I know. It's just, it, This is a list of things that have happened. Anyway, one of the songs that was due to be on the album but was dropped quite late was Step Out because it bore such a close resemblance to Uptight, Everything's Alright, that it had to be removed from the album due to the threat of legal action. And we've never criticised Noel Gallagher for plagiarism before, and we certainly (laughs) won't um, during the course of this album either. So it it ended up as a B-side to Don't Look Back in Anger, and Stevie Wonder and his songwriting team get songwriting credits on on it. They do. And um, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It does bear a striking resemblance. Oh, yeah. And I do like Step Out, but I I do much prefer Uptight Everything's Alright, because that's a fucking banger. Yeah, it is a banger. So Noel summed up the album to the Rolling Stone in 95 as definitely maybe was about dreaming of being a pop star in a band. What's the story was about actually being a pop star in a band. Yes, and you can hear that. So tonally, there's a big difference as well. So yeah, definitely maybe was very raw. This is a much more confident album that Noel has much more faith in his in his writing in, yes. in this. And that's that's quite clear. Unfortunately, he got so much faith that it led to be here now. We'll t- we're going to come on to this. When we've, I don't want to tread old ground no. too much because we've done be here now. But you can actually hear the genesis of Be Here Now within some of the tracks on this album. Um, And we will will definitely get onto that. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, there's a very different, more confident, more expansive sound on this album. There's a lot more use of orchestral sounds, arrangements, a lot more ballads on this album compared to Definitely Maybe. And yeah, it all seems to have been a deliberate choice to say, all right, we're here now, and now you're going to fucking have it. Well, I, su- I suppose it's they learned from whatever, really, that you could do a song that had orchestral bits in it, and people would go with you. Indeed. So I've got, I've not got anything more to say about the recording of the album. Uh, do you have anything you, you wish to add? Uh, so the only other thing to say is that this is the first album on which Alan White plays drums on the majority Mm -hmm. of songs so the original drummer tony mccarroll he plays the drums on some might say which was the first single released on the album as kev alluded to last week mccarroll was asked to leave the band because he was deemed not good enough to play a lot of the arrangements on the album owen morris said on his blog that tony was quiet and always polite to me but seemed out of his depth i think tony did well to survive as long as he did in oasis he also described McCall's drumming as extremely basic. Wow. I mean, that's damning. 
It is damning. And I suppose when you compare the drum arrangements and the drum rhythms from this album to Definitely Maybe, yes, there is more complexity. But personally, I think that McCarroll's drumming on Definitely Maybe, it feeds into that raw sound that I mentioned earlier. It's unfussy drumming. Thank you. Much better. Like I, I do, I, I feel sorry for Tony McCarroll because, and we we've already mentioned Supersonic that he gets absolutely fucking torn a new one uh, by Noel Gallagher in the documentary. Yeah, he that he, he he basically says like he couldn't even keep time, mm. and I mean I have no idea how how good he was like in the studio or, or that like, but I I am less inclined to believe Noel Gallagher. Well, we have seen and indeed we'll see in a few minutes' time, Noel Gallagher is one for an element of revisionism, let's say, mm-hmm. and bending the narrative to suit his current point of view. Mm-hmm. The only thing I want to say on McCarroll is that in 1999, he sued Oasis for £18 million, pounds, claiming that he was owed part of the band's five-year deal with creation. Now, that would have set a massive precedent because it effectively would have given him royalties for records that he never played upon. Now, this case was eventually settled out of court and he agreed to receive £550,000 in damages. And with that, he also agreed to give up future royalties. Whoops. Yeah, I I think his legal team were not great. (laughs) Well, and apparently his legal fees were something around about half of the settlement he received. Wow. I mean, he'd, he'd overplayed his hand. Yeah. by trying to get five yeah. years' worth of, of royalties. But, yeah, he, he'd settled on a shite deal there. Absolutely. Apparently, it was also it was the same legal team who, back in, what, 94, 95, had, had managed to win a, a two and a half million settlement for Pete Best from the Beatles. <laughs> right, okay. So, there you go. Obviously, the firm to go to for disaffected drummers. <laughs> I, th- I suppose the only other thing to talk about in, in relation to the album before we talk about very briefly how we came across it uh, is the cover. Yeah. So it's a picture of uh, two men passing in a street in London. Berwick Street. So it's uh, DJ Sean Rowley and the album sleeve designer Brian Cannon, who's the uh, individual with the back to the camera. Owen Morris is in the background on the left footpath. So and he's holding the masters of the album in front of his face. He is indeed. So yes, it's Berwick Street in London. I have been to Berwick Street, and it has basically become like Abbey Road. The number of people who want to take their own photograph, like the cover of What's the Story, Morning Glory. I'm like, fine, okay, it's just a nondescript street. It's and and it, you don't even have the same view anymore because there's some modern apartments have have been built. And anyway. Yeah, lots of people try and take the same photo. I did not. No, well, you know, fair enough. Uh, I mean, we talked about the cover of Be Here Now, didn't we? Which was very elaborate. This is much less so. And is it? I wouldn't even... This is even more understated than the cover of Definitely Maybe. I like the simplicity of it. I can't say is it has any particular impact on me one way or the other, to be honest with you. I think the definitely maybe and be here now have sort of knowing references and pictures mm-hmm. and yes little easter eggs and that like i i'm quite happy with the cover of this because it's just it's a cover and it's fine yeah, and it's uh, and it you know it has owen morris holding the the masters okay fine there's there's your little easter egg for your oasis uh nerds in there but 
It's fine. And it like it's it is without question one of the iconic covers of certainly British music in that in this period. Yeah, all right. No, fair play, fair play. But I have nothing else to say about it. No. So Tim, how did you first come across the album? At the risk of repeating myself from last week's show, I was 14 in 1995. I bought this album on the first week of release. How about you? Ditto. <laughs> There you go. Shall we move on? Yeah, let's move on. So let's get into it. So first song is Hello. And there's not a huge amount to say about about this song. It's very Oasis in its sound. The start the start of it after the acoustic the acoustic guitar, it's it's a bit like a siren like a, a siren. It's a warning of what's of what's to come, really. So you've got the wah wah kicking in. So yeah, you've got yeah. the you've got the false start of the the opening chords of Wonderwall, and then yeah, the guitar kicks in. What a start! It absolutely sets out what this album is about. I still like it, even despite the fact that unfortunately the core, the chorus towards the end does reference uh, Gary Glitter, who is an actual confirmed nonce, an actual paedophile. Yeah, the so he does get a writing credit because it is quite clearly taken from um his song. Yeah, so it's as you said, it's taken from from Gary Glitter's song "Hello, Hello, I'm Back Again," and he gets a songwriting credit. But what a start! As I said, those opening acoustic chords that a false start, and then that, like you said, that wah wah kicking in like a alert. Here we go, like yeah, a punch in the face, just like I said about stereotype. Then that fucking thundering drum roll. And we're off. It's a clarion call. Very good way of putting it. It's also, you've got Liam at his brilliant, nasally best, spitting out the lyrics here. I think that this album is the album that he sounds best on. Unquestionably, yes. So the first album, he sounds quite raw. And I like like it, but he has a bit more craft about him on this album. After mm-hmm. after this, like potentially down to the prodigious co- cocaine. Uh, well, he got a bit tape. too nasally, as we've said before. <laughs> yeah, or or and later on, he sound he sounded more of a pastiche of himself. But here, he sounds great, and it's an absolute balls out. This is this is what we're about. Get on board. It is. So you you mentioned the, the Noel quote about this album is about actually being in a band. And this song is very much that. It talks about how life has changed. And to me, nowhere is that clearer than the bridge. No, it's never going to be the same till the life I knew comes to my house and says, hello. Things are different now. This is us. Thunderous. What a start. Let's fucking go. Without question. I mean, like, is there anything more to say about this song? No, I like it. Yeah, I I do. I do like it. And that's not just the nostalgia. Um, it absolutely is a smack in the face. Here we go. Absolutely. So I, I want to pick up on the nostalgia point because exactly the same as with Great Escape, I and I'm sure you did the same, I would listen to this album trying to divorce myself from all that, as I did with Be Here Now. And I think it's all too easy because of what Oasis came to represent to try and sneer at their highs which, as we'll come to say, I think is very harsh. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think, well, I'm certainly not going to hold back in praising the songs on this album that I think need to be praised because the things that Oasis did that were good were really fucking good. Yeah, no matter what we think about what they became, 
what they did or any of the members of the band. They made music that was important to people and was good. Like, yeah. you know, you, you may not particularly like it yourself, but it wasn't shite. No, exactly. Okay. So let's move on to Oasis' contribution to the Britpop battle. Roll with it. So as you've as you've alluded to, Noel in 2019 basically described the song as a load of shit. <laughs> that no one the song has never been played by anyone since the band split up. And it it's difficult to really say a huge amount beyond that. It's fine, but it's it is very meat and potatoes. It is as I think Tim Burgess definitely described it perfectly by saying it's a it's flat pack oasis. Yeah. It, it has all the constituent elements, but it's it's a bit dull. It's exactly that. It is oasis by numbers. So I I think I didn't make my feelings particularly well hidden, disguised last week. I've never been very keen on roll with it. The opening chords are great. And then once again, just like hello, you've got that brilliant drum roll to kick things off. And you're thinking, all right, come on, let's go. And then it just sort of fizzles out. It chugs, just, it chugs along. It just yeah. It just it doesn't go anywhere. I always thought this was an odd choice, not even as a single, but an odd choice to put on the album. When you talk about some of the tracks that were consigned to B-sides, Acquiesce, The Master Plan, Rocking Chair, which was a B-side to this song. Even Head Shrinker. Exactly. So for this to make it to the album was surprising enough. But then for them to say, and now it's the single, oh. Oh, I don't know. And second second song into the album. Yeah. It's an odd choice. It is an odd choice. So a couple of things I'd just like to say. So this was, as well as the first single to feature Alan White, it's the first song he recorded apparently after joining the band. It doesn't appear to be about anything. So Noel, in an interview Rolling Stone, he said, when I'm sober, I think too much about the lyrics. I'm at my best when I'm pissed out my head and I just write. When I'm straight, you get raw with it. Little pop ditties. When I'm out of it on drugs, I get a seriously cocky bastard. Understand? Yes, no. We understand perfectly. Please see your next album. <laughs> Even some of the later songs on well, this yeah. album. I mean, there's not there's not a huge amount more to say with Roll With It. It's I've got one more thing to say, so we know it reached number two in the UK. Uh, it also reached number six on the Eurochart Hot 100. <laughs> you just wanted an excuse to do that, didn't you? Yes, I did. Okay, let's move on to the third song on the album. You may have heard of it. So Wonderwall, named after the George Harrison album, Wonderwall Music. And I have noted it down here as ruiner of many a party in the 90s due to some knobhead with an acoustic. Not guilty i don't know what you're talking about i've already told you stand by me was my weapon of choice so (laughs) fuck you you know exactly what i'm talking about it may not have been you but you've been to those parties (laughs) and i I will i will put money down that there will be lads who are still trying to oppress women by playing uh, wonderwall very badly let us know send us a tweet send us an email are you one of the dickheads that played uh wonderwall at a party when you're pissed up in the 90s or since did you ruin someone else else's good time <laughs> or did it ever work exactly did it work 
were you successful in wooing the girl or man that you were choosing to uh, serenade by playing Wonderwall? Because that would be a turn up for the books. So what I also want to bring to the table, because they, like, again, the 90s was a fucking weird period of time. Notable cover version, Mike Flowers Pops, an easy listening version of this song that sold 200,000 copies and reached number two in the charts. Just two months after the release of the original version. Unfucking believable Yep. It's great though, isn't it? What the um the Mike Flowers Pops version? Yeah. <laughs> it is. Sorry, I it mean, is. It's a great, it's a great easy listening version. I, I'm not gonna You can't claim to love Burt Bacharach and then say that's shite because it <laughs> fucking ain't. So what do you what do you think about the song? So there's a few things I want to talk factually, but I will share my feelings about the song first. Partly because of the reasons you just said and we just talked about. I got so fucking sick of this song yeah. back in the 90s. And while it is far from Oasis' best song, it is definitely a classic. I like it. Again, listen to it with the benefit of years of distance, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I like it. I think the use of the cello, it's a departure from anything they'd done before, maybe apart from whatever, and certainly anything that's come in the first two tracks on the album. It's easy to see why it was such a big hit. I like it. So, unsurprising for the listeners, I'm not going to disagree with you. Despite its prevalence, despite the fact, and I think that, I mean, I've not listened to the album for a couple of years, so I I haven't heard Wonderwall for a while. Listening back to it for this clash, it's a really good song. It's It's a very good piece of pop music, and that's not a criticism to call it pop music. It's, it's well-performed. Liam sounds great on it, and it's, its simplicity works really well and all. Liam does sound great on it, and some reviewers claimed that it was a song he'd struggle with. Bollocks, he sounds brilliant on this. So, a couple of things I want to talk about. Firstly, what's this song about, Kev? Or who's it written for? Well, there is some debate on that. Yes, but... Okay, It was widely reported at the time to have been written about Noel's then-girlfriend, future wife, who we've talked about before, Meg Matthews. And it was originally called Wishing Stone. I'm sorry. I'm glad you changed the title. Yeah. However, Noel, in an interview with BBC Radio 2 in October 2002, this is a year after they had divorced, he said that it was not about Meg Matthews. And he said, the meaning of that song was taken away from me by the media who jumped on it. How do you tell your missus it's not about her once she's read it is? It's a song about an imaginary friend who's going to come and save you from yourself. Well, that is unfortunate, Noel. I'm really sorry that the media distorted the original meaning of the song. That being said, I would say it's highly irresponsible then for someone to have told the NME back in October (laughs) of 1995 that... She had a company which folded and she was feeling a bit sorry for herself. The sentiment is that there was no point in her feeling down. She has to sort out my life for me because I'm in bits half the time. So whoever would have made up such infamatory and false claims and quotes? (laughs) 
I mean, as we have said before, he is not the most reliable narrator. <laughs> I mean, we've like, and we talked about Alan McGee not being a reliable narrator either. Quite. There's many people involved in this story whose version of events you cannot believe. Precisely. I mean, sorry, Noel, you can tell yourself what you like. There's no fucking way this song's about an imaginary friend. Nah. I don't believe that anybody feels the way I do about you now. Fuck off. It's about Meg. Just own it. Yeah. The relationship didn't work out. Fine. It's a good song. It's about your ex-missus. Fine. Who cares? Yeah. You've mo- you've moved on with your life. So, you know, you wrote it about, about her. Like Nick Cave wrote West Country Girl about Polly Jean Harvey. He moved on. Precisely. Oh, couple of things extra to say so the baseline on this track is played by noel gallagher and not quigsy and the video for wonderwall features the short-lived oasis member scott mcleod indeed it does so he joined the band after quigsy had left their u.s tour after it complained of suffering from exhaustion McLeod himself would only be with the band for a fortnight because he himself suffered from homesickness and so left before Quixie rejoined. But those two weeks included an appearance on Letterman. And appearing in the video. <laughs> exactly. Do you reckon he got paid for it? <laughs> well, it's not a bad two weeks, to be fair. <laughs> exactly. I've had worse, worse um, per- periods of leave from work. Quite so. The final thing to say, so this also reached number two in the UK charts. And do you remember what kept it off number one? I want to say All Saints, but I could be wrong. You are wrong. Ah. Far worse than All Saints. Robson and Jerome. Oh, my God, yeah. (laughs) Simon Cowell produced. (laughs) With their double A side of I Believe and Up on the Roof. Oh, God. It wasn't even their version of Unchained Melody. (laughs) So, for those not familiar with mid-90s UK chart scene, Robson and Jerome were a couple of actors, Robson Green and Jerome Flynn, who'd been in a serial drama... Soldier, Soldier. Soldier, Soldier, exactly. Who played best friends in the show. And in one episode, they performed... Was it like someone's wedding, anyway? They performed a version of Unchained Melody. Simon Cowell of, well, everyone knows who Simon Cowell is now. He of the high trousers. music line. fame. <laughs> and, and high trousers. He decided he could make a few quid off them, sign them to a record deal. They released a version of Unchained Melody, which got to number one. They then released, I believe, with the double A siders up on the roof, which kept Wonderwall off number one. And yeah, everyone made a load of money and the world was a worse place for it. Mams loved them, though. <laughs> Not my mum, but like... My, I'd love to say my mum didn't, but I'd be lying. <laughs> In the space of 12 months, my mum subjected me to fucking wet, 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 love is all around. And then fucking Robson and Jerome. Now, I've said before, my mum introduced me to some good things. But fucking hell. I'm I'm sure was it my mum or my dad? One of the two of them was definitely banging to Jimmy Nile. So you know oh, <laughs> crocodile shoes. Crocodile shoes, yeah. Oh, Jesus. But not Daniel O'Donnell, because that was your nan. No, my nan never never liked her, Daniel O'Donnell. No, but like no, your yeah, it, nan. No, no, I know like not my nan, but like Daniel O'Donnell was the nan's favourite. 
I mean, if you're if you're in America or um, our listener in Brazil, I'm sorry, we've gone so niche. <laughs> Unless Daniel O'Donnell's big in Brazil, and if so, why? I mean, he's Catholic, so there's every chance. <laughs> sure, move on. What song are we talking about? <laughs> Wonderwall. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like it. Move on. Yeah, it's it's a really good song. I can't believe that we went from talking about Wonderworld. Daniel O'Donnell. Oh, I can. <laughs> okay. So the next song on the album is Don't Look Back in Anger. Now, we've talked about Noel Gallagher and plagiarism. <laughs> so the piano riff at the start, he admits he'd nicked it from Imagine. Really? <laughs> <laughs> well he also admits um that the lines about i'm going to start a revolution from my bed because they said the brains i had went to my head was directly lifted from a john lennon interview that he heard it was john lennon's audio memoirs or something wasn't it yeah so the the quote i've seen that noel says that he heard that tape and he's like i'm having that so apparently the song itself was written a week before it was first performed as an acoustic performance of the first verse at the Sheffield Arena gig, um, which was a massive gig for Oasis. It was their first arena gig. And yeah, like he wrote it really quickly. So we've said this before. Well, I think you said when we were going through Thriller, when it's a hit, it's a hit. You just know it. When it's right, it's right. And no matter what you think of, of Noel Gallagher, of his singing voice, or the fact that he nicks bits from other people's music to, to give you a hook, it's brilliant. It's so it well done. It's and it like you can go to any family wedding in the country <laughs> and this song gets played and people are fucking belting it out. It's one of those songs. It's one of those songs where people get round in a circle and sing their fucking hearts out to it. It's a it's a it, it's a classic. I think we have well and truly hit peak hive mind here (laughs) what can you say about this song it's just epic huge anthemic chorus if you've never belted this out at karaoke or at a family wedding (laughs) then you're either a liar or a fridge (laughs) yeah i'm sorry like it is a song that is absolutely woven into the the fabric of british life now this song no matter where you go People, even if they don't like it, they know the fucking chorus because and get a couple of drinks into a couple into fellas of a certain age and they will fucking belt this out. And I will hold my hand up because I am one of those fellas. I will unashamedly hold my hand up to it. I'll do it now if you want to stick the song on. (laughs) No shame here at all. I fucking love Don't Look Back in Anger. It's it's great. It is. It is. So it's taken on another life in recent years, and we should we should touch on this. Yeah. So following the the tragic uh, Manchester Arena bombing in May 2017, it's become sort of representative of the emotional recovery of the city from that tragedy. Mm-hmm. It was spontaneously sung by a crowd that was gathered to observe a minute's silence at Manchester Town Hall. And in an interview with The Guardian, the woman who started the singing, and I apologise, I've not noted down her name, She said, I love Manchester and Oasis. It's part of my childhood. Don't look back in anger. That's what this is about. We can't be looking backwards to what's happened. We have to look forwards to the future. And um, it was performed at the One Love Manchester gig later that month. 
sadly by Chris Martin, which, you know... Nobody wants. <laughs> but yeah, it, it's very much taken on, on a new life and represents something something bigger. And to me, that speaks to the power of music and the power of, of songs and how they can be written to mean one thing, but mean something else entirely to the audience. And we'll actually talk about that later on when we talk about Champagne Supernova. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it's... Um, taken on an added poignancy because of that yeah it, it created a great um cathartic moment for the city yes. yeah the as you say it has a an additional meaning now that the song can never lose i, I suppose similar to the way that feddy across the mersey developed yeah. a different meaning after after it was released as a charity single for hillsborough very very good point actually yeah i'd not made that link but you're you're absolutely right Okay, so let's go on to the next song, which is Hey Now. I mean, I don't have a huge amount to say about this song. So I have fond memories of this song from the time. But listening to it now, it is properly Meat and Potatoes Oasis. It's not a bad song. It's a bit meh. It's also too long. And some of the problems of the subsequent album, you can see the genus in it. You lose a minute and it's fine. It's a perfectly good album song. It's it's never going to blow you away, but it'd be all right. It's like five minutes long. Five minutes, 31 seconds. Yeah. It's too long. Like I'm bored. It is too long. You mentioned when you were going through the background and the recording of the album that Noel had said half the songs weren't written and he ended up just basically sacking off. We'll do one or two verses and then just repeat them. Yeah, very much so on this song. And they fucking love a hand clap on this album. (laughs) Now, I likewise have fond memories of this song. Listening to it back, yes, it's too long. Yes, it's meat and potatoes. It does have a catchy melody. It's fine. I don't mind it, but it ain't great. Okay, let's move on. So to quite a brief song, which is the Swamp Song. The most interesting thing to say about the Swamp Song is that Paul Weller plays the harmonica on it. And the lead guitar. And the lead guitar. And what I've always felt about the Swamp Song, like from the first time I heard the album and from when I heard it last before we we started recording, fuck me, I want to hear more of that. Thank you. Why didn't they put the whole thing on the album? It absolutely sounds like a fucking epic jam. Like, I want to hear that. So it was it was the B-side to Wonderwall, and it ended up on the master plan. So if you're an Oasis fan, you have heard the whole thing. And I know you have. Yeah. But you're absolutely right. You hear this in 1995, and this excerpt in particular, because there's another one we'll come to, where it comes in, you've got the harmonica bit, then you've got Paul Weller's guitar coming, and you're thinking, ooh, hello. And then you hear the full version. And again, you've got the thunderous rolling drums from Alan White. You've got the just the cacophony. I'm not going to call it a wall of sound. I'm going to call it a wall of noise. Well, and, th- and that and that does speak to what we talked about earlier, is that it is a fucking loud album. Oh, I, it is a loud album. It's a very, very loud album. Only other thing I'll say about it is the drum part, which I've just mentioned from Alan White, was recorded from the band's soundtrack at Glastonbury in 1995. Is that right? It is indeed. Okay. Yeah, really good. Stick it all on the album. Why not? Yeah, like uh, you've not lost anything by uh, putting the whole version on there. But, you know, there you go. Okay, so then we move on to Oasis's first number one, some might say. Do, Do we? I've got this album on vinyl. Okay, so I'm going on the classic release. So for people who have this album on vinyl, the end of side two is a song called Bonehead's Bank Holiday. I'm not going to say loads about it. 
it was a whimsical tale about Paul Arthur's bonehead, the band's rhythm guitarist. He was supposed to sing it, but he got pissed and bottled it. It's very throwaway. It's very silly. There's not much else to say. So, yeah, we've covered it. Yeah, we've covered it. Okay, we move on to some might say. So, first number one that Oasis had, last song to have all the original members in it. So, Tony McCarroll plays on this. One thing that I do want to say is that uh, the video for it had to be cobbled together from footage from other videos because Liam didn't turn up. <laughs> yeah, so it's the it's uh, an amalgam of cigarettes and alcohol, whatever, and the US video for Supersonic. Yes. <laughs> what do you think? I love Some Might Say. Always have. I think it's great. It's the most definitely maybe track on the album, and that's possibly because Tony McCarroll drums on it. I think all the reverb on it, all the delay on it, all the distortion. It's a great rock song. It's another one of my go-to karaoke songs, I'm not going to lie. Yeah, I've always liked the song, so I'm not disagreeing with you. I can understand if someone felt it was a little bit plodding. And what I noted down here is that could end about a minute earlier, a problem Morris and Gallagher would have on their next album. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's fair. So there is something I'd like to talk about, about the recording of this song, if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. So, and this is from Owen Morris's blog, and I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's fucking long. But basically, so there was a demo recorded for this. The demo was apparently much slower and dirtier, as Owen Morris is quoted as saying. So they went to then record the backing track for what would become the single. And basically, it was much faster, unintentionally Mm -hmm. so. And so Noel and Owen Morris were listening back to it late one night and decided, now this is too fast. We need to go and redo it again. So for some reason, decided, let's wake everyone up now in the middle of the night and re-record it. Because people are going to perform really well when just woken up. Exactly. And then according to Owen Morris... He says, we do one take and decide we're all fucking geniuses and that we've definitely nailed the backing track. Next day, Liam wants to sing. So Liam sings his lead vocal in two takes, fucking on fire singing. Thing is, the backing track is faster than we'd ever intended. And it had massive problems, like a really bad speed up during the first three bars of the first chorus. But we had to fucking use it because Liam's singing was undeniably brilliant. The mix was then a nightmare. I mixed it on three separate occasions, finally putting on all the delays and chaos in an attempt to hide the mistakes. And to me, it's the the noise, the revert. That's one of the things I love about the song. Yeah. Interesting tale there. Yeah, I like some might say. Yeah, it's it, it's a really, as you say, it's a really good rock song. And I, 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 still, I still like it. Yep. Okay, so then we move on to uh, Cast No Shadow. Noel has openly admitted that the song was about Richard Ashcroft uh, of The Verve. Well, it's in fact dedicated to him on the sleeve notes for the album. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I was not aware of prior to doing this clash was obviously I was aware that Oasis had supported The Verve, but I wasn't aware that Liam provided hand claps on The Verve song On Your Own. So in terms of, in terms of this album, um, we've talked about pace changes before when doing album clashes. It's a really good tempo change here. Yeah. It it works because you've had you've had a lot of songs that are very up, very loud, very sort of this highlights the development of the band. And it's much more introspective, much more uh, developed. And I, I really I've always really liked Cast No Shadow. Likewise. Lyrically, it's very poignant. 
I love the line as he faced the Cerny cast no shadow. To me, that seems to be a reference to the fact that in Noel's eyes, at least at the time, Richard Ashcroft hadn't achieved the recognition that he mm-hmm. deserved. Now, obviously, the Verve would go on to great success, but um, Noel, in an interview with Select Magazine, uh, he said about Richard Ashcroft, he always seemed to me to not be very happy about what was going on around him, almost trying too hard. That's where the line, bound with all the weight of all the words he tried to say, comes from. Yeah, I like Cast No Shadow. Always have really good song. Yeah, it, it is it is really well done. And it, it works so well as a tempo change for the album. Yeah, I, I, like both fans of it, let's, let's move on to the next one. She's Electric. <sighs> Tim, I believe you have an opinion on this. I mean, coming after Cast No Shadow, which we've just said is a great pace change, and before Morning Glory as well, the best I can say about it is it's in the wrong place on the album. But again, when you've discarded tracks like Acquiesce and Master Plan, what's this doing on this album? What's it doing on it? So I don't disagree with you. I've always had mixed feelings. Like, I know that you've always disliked this song. Oh, I. I've always had mixed feelings about it. So sometimes I like it and sometimes I absolutely hate it. I will admit that I am currently in my positive phase <laughs> towards it. Okay. So I don't dis- I don't dislike the song. Like, it- maybe it's a nostalgia thing. Maybe it's remembrance of things past and singing along with it with people when drunk and all that kind of thing. But I, I, do, I do generally feel positive towards it at the minute. The rhyming couplets are so... I know. We criticised Great Escape for cheesiness, campiness, as I said. This is no different. She's got a cousin, she's got one in the oven, but it's nothing to do with me. Oh, very, very droll. I never liked it, never will. No, and that's, and that's fair enough. You have always been very clear of your disdain for this song. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Much like you were about being here now. Yeah, so I, I can't I can't criticize you for feeling that. As I say, I have much more mixed feelings towards it, and I am generally feeling positive towards it. So a couple of things to say about it. The line, there's lots and lots for us to see, there's lots and lots for us to do, is taken from the theme tune to 80s kids TV show You and Me, hosted by Gary Wilmot and featuring the puppets Cosmo and Dips. <laughs> sort of like a low-rent English version of Sesame Street, if you want. And the other thing is that uh, much more obviously, the little progression at the end uh, is lifted straight from the end of, with a little help from my friends from Sergeant Peppers, another song I don't mm-hmm. like. <laughs> well, yes, and we've discussed that before. Yeah. Uh, no, not having it. So can we move on, please? <laughs> yeah, okay. So we then go on to the title song from the album. So Kenneth Partridge of The Rolling Stone Alan's lad. (laughs) When uh, reviewing the album as part of a retrospective, noticed that the opening riff was somewhat similar to R.E.M.'s The One I Love. That was also noted by Melody Maker in their initial review in in 95. Because it is. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it is. I don't care. This song's a banger. Yeah, always like always liked Morning Glory. Always thought it was an absolute belter. What's it about, Kev? <laughs> no idea. It's about drugs. <laughs> really? Unless I've misinterpreted the line, all your dreams are made when you're chained to the mirror and the razor blade. 
that might be about something much more innocent, like having a shave in the morning. Yes. Well, we 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 know that the, the band definitely didn't have a cocaine problem. No. Although what what it has reminded me of. So we talked about the um, abandoned uh, Rockfield sessions for uh, the first album. Apparently, so relatively close to to Rockfield was the was the recording studio that the Stone Roses were recording in. Well, no, the Roses. Sorry, there are two studios on the same site that used to be part of the Rockfield complex, Rockfield and Mono Farm. For the definitely maybe sessions, I'm sorry, Roses were using Rockfield. Oasis were at Mono Farm. So all I was going to say was that it is reported that Noel Gallagher went over to score from Manny. Well, it's not a surprise those sessions were abandoned. No, indeed, <laughs> no. <laughs> As I believe you said when we were going through Second Coming, Manny was on, and I quote, all sorts. All the drugs. <laughs> he had taken the Keith Richards uh, method to recording. <laughs> um, so a few things I want to say about Morning Glory. That opening guitar riff and then the drums that come in, it's fucking huge. Yeah. And this, perhaps more than any other song on the album, this is where you see what they were trying to do with Be Here Now. Because you've got all the double tracks and the triple tracks and the, the noise, the wall of noise again, as I mentioned earlier. That's here. On Be Here Now, they took it to excess. Here, it works. And I fucking love it. It's great. It is, a, it is an absolutely phenomenal song. But yeah, I think I think you can definitely say on a number of tracks on this album, you can see the genesis of of what went wrong. Mm-hmm. That they thought they'd found a formula and then snorted it up their noses. Well, exactly, exactly. And like you can you can you can see that with 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 the with the start and how and how it ends as well because it doesn't mm-hmm. kind of end the song. Like one of the things that I definitely noticed when I was listening to this album is. They don't know how to end a song. Even the song that we're about to come on to, and I like the way it ends, but they mm-hmm. don't quite know how to stop. Yeah, absolutely right. So a couple of things. Well, there's another obligatory Beatles reference in the lyrics. Tomorrow never knows what doesn't know too soon. Check. <laughs> this was released as a single in Australia, which number 25. In New Zealand, which number 29. It was also released as a radio single in North America. And this song and the next song are the songs that broke them in America. Mm-hmm. This received massive airplay. They played this on Letterman, as I said earlier. And yeah, this made them in the States. Do you know what I, I realized we haven't discussed? So you're talking about them breaking America. That So we talked about, obviously, uh, Don't Look Back in Anger. We haven't discussed the video at all, which was... It was very MTV friendly. So I had Patrick McNee in it. And loads of MTV friendly models. Yeah, it was very stylized. and was very unlike their videos before. So there was a clearly a thought process to try and break America. And yeah. the, vi- the video for, for the next song that we will talk about, you can see that there was, there was a thought process there in how it was stylized and how it was done. Do you know what else we haven't talked about yet, Kev? The fight. Yes, we're we're getting. So we will lit. We when will, are we going to get to the fireworks factory? Now. <laughs> so, champagne soup and well, actually no, because we've got to do the untitled track number two. Well, I've got one more thing to say about Morning Glory first. Okay, go ahead. 
uh, at the end of the song, there's like the sound of a radio being tuned and a brief snippet of another song comes in. Do you know what that song is? No, I've always wondered that. It is Love Enough by Soul to Soul. Well, there you go. (laughs) Move on. (laughs) Okay. So this should be relatively quick to go through. So untitled number two. It's the Swamp Song again, and the whole thing should have been the album. Yeah, it's another bit of the Swamp Song. Would have liked more of it. And then it fades into kind of ocean sounds. It's like someone's lashed a a radio into the sea. (laughs) (laughs) So you you get 30 seconds of it, and then it sinks. And so then we go into the sea sounds and then the opening of Champagne Supernova. And we get to the fight. Go on. So, during the session to record the song, Liam had recorded his guide vocal and was bored. (laughs) So, he went to the pub whilst the rest of the band worked. He then returned back a few hours later with 20 locals pissed up and generally causing some commotion. So, I have it told that it wasn't 20 locals. There were several locals amongst the party, but there was a group uh, including producer and professional mank John Robb. <laughs> of course he was involved. <laughs> and the band Cable. Sorry, Kev. Carry on. So this then leads to somewhat of a disagreement between the, the two brothers. And Liam batters down the door to Noel's room because there's accommodation on the site. Noel does not take this well. And things escalate to the point where Noel hits Liam with a cricket bat. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, firstly, why have you got a cricket bat knocking about a recording studio? It's a big sight, Kev. Get him a cricket. (laughs) It was May. Get him a cricket outside when it's nice. Why not? Well, Bonev was bowling bouncers. Uh, I see him more of a sort of... um... Medium pace. (laughs) Poor Collingwood (laughs) off-cutters. One for the cricket fans. None of this is being edited out of the show. So tough shit, listeners. We like cricket. (laughs) Move on. Yeah. So after Noel goes at him with a cricket bat, everyone sort of retires and the band sort of scatters around the country for a break from each other for a while. Yes. So can I... um, I've got some quotes to read about this. And they're both long, but I want to give you Noel's side of the story and Liam's side of the story, if I may. (laughs) Yes. And most of this is taken from Supersonic, so just watch that. So Noel said, Liam came back with a load of scruffy-looking C-words. They came into the studio, and Owen sent them out to the farmhouse. Somebody let a fire extinguisher off in the farmhouse, and shit got damaged. Now, why I had a fight with Liam that night... I think maybe one of my guitars got damaged and I blame him for bringing people back. I ended up being in a proper fight with Liam and it might have been the biggest fight we ever had. I remember fucking smashing his head in with a cricket bat, as you just said. I do remember jumping out of a window and then I remember driving off with Whitey. As we were driving, leaving the studio, Liam appeared out of nowhere and threw a dustbin at the car. (laughs) We had a couple of weeks off. Every time there was ever a scene in Oasis, when we get back together, it was like nothing had ever happened. So that's Noel's side of the story. Liam said, I probably did bring a few people back to have a party, and he weren't happy about it. I shouldn't have brought them back, but I thought we were a rock and roll band, and I thought anything goes in Oasis. But obviously other people had rules. 
Fuck the rules, man. I can't remember the fight. I remember the drunken fueled fucking mayhem. The whole studio got smashed to pieces. The fucking living room, the TV, anything and everything just got fucking blitzed. Yeah, terrible. There was no need for him to fucking hit me with a cricket bat around the head, though. Do you know what I mean? I mean, he's got a point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he he does have a point. That there was no need to hit him with a cricket bat. I mean, um, that fracturous relationship continued throughout the rest of their career together as a band, really. Without question. I do have a notable cover version. <laughs> I think you probably know what it is. <laughs> Go on. The Urban Cookie Collective <laughs> did a dance cover, but Noel has prevented release of it. Release the Urban Cookie Cut. Let's get my hashtag trending on Twitter. Yeah. Fuck the Snyder Cut. <laughs> We're on the Urban Cookie Cut. Oh, God. Do not, Kev, please do not bring down the wrath of Zack Snyder fans onto this podcast. <laughs> like, fucking hell. <laughs> Awful people. All I want is the Urban Cookie Collective Cut. That's, that's all I want. <laughs> so, start bombarding Noel on Twitter. <laughs> Get Liam on it. He'll be up for it. <laughs> So I suppose we should actually talk about the actual song. If you must, go on. And I don't think this is going to be a hugely long conversation because I fucking adore it and always have. Oh, God, yes. It still makes the hairs on the back of my neck stand on end, is what I've written. It's fucking epic. And I mean, anyone who has had the pleasure of listening to the Nebworth live Mm -hmm. recording, so the version with John Squire playing is phenomenal. It is. I already love the song, but it elevates it. And look, I have on this podcast have said how much I like a sort of two minute, three minute, very simple garage band song. But I also like an extended jam. Mm -hmm. And that is very much what it is. Champagne Supernova is a great song. And I'm not going to hear a bad word against it. No, I agree with you. From the opening sounds of, as you mentioned earlier, the waves lapping against the shore, then you get that guitar lick kicks in all the way through to the final strains of the harmonium. It is seven minutes and 27 seconds of glorious music. It's fucking brilliant. So it's apparently the last song Oasis played live on stage before they split up. Which is, you know, as as we talked about with Prince a couple of weeks back, it seems fitting that that was the last song. Yeah. There's one thing I want to talk about. I mentioned this earlier about how songs take on additional meaning as soon as they get introduced to the public, really. And this is something that Noel Gallagher himself has recognised. And he talks a lot of shit, Noel, and we've called him out on this podcast and on previous shows about, about that. But this is one quote from Noel that I really do like, actually. So there's been interviewed from The Times in 2008 around the release of Dig Out Your Soul. And he was talking about Champagne Supernova. He said, this writer, he was going on about Champagne Supernova. And he actually said to me, the one thing stopping it being a classic is the ridiculous lyrics. And I went, what do you mean by that? He said, slowly walking down the hall faster than a cannonball. What does that mean? And I went, I don't know, but are you telling me when you've got 60,000 people singing it, they don't know what it means? It means something different to every one of them. Spot on. 
yeah, the song, as as with any song, you bring your own personal experiences, you bring your own everything to it, and it means what it means to you. But the fact that that song, like if if Oasis reformed tomorrow and they didn't play Champagne Supernova, you'd be fucking fuming. Yep. Be like the roses not playing on the resurrection. Yeah, you'd feel cheated. You'd feel cheated. Yeah. You cannot get past it. The, it doesn't like that's that's the thing is that lyrics the there are certain certain artists who the lyrics are so important for, like Dylan or Leonard Cohen. But oh you don't go to Oasis for clever lyrical content. You go for them for how it makes you feel, for the emotion, for everything else around it. And Champagne Supernova, whilst you've got a verse which is repeated several times throughout it, but it doesn't matter because the song means something different to people, irregardless of the lyrical content of it. I have nothing to add to that. I think that is beautifully put. Apart from you use the word irregardless, which isn't a word. <laughs> no. There is some debate about whether no. it is actually a word or not. Regardless is a word. Irrespective is a word. Irregardless is not a word. <laughs> Staying in the show. <laughs> of course it is, because you're being pedantic. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so that was wonderfully put. I, I can't add anything to that. Yeah, I think we I think we we will move on to talking about its legacy in the reviews. So as as we said, the the legacy of the album is that Oasis exploded and they became arguably the biggest band in the world at the time. It led to the Nebworth shows where 250,000 people went to see them. It led to them breaking America and then they fucked it up as we talked about on our uh, Be Here Now episode. Mm-hmm. Um, the album itself, when it came out, it received very lukewarm reviews. And um, There is some thought that the amazing reviews that Be Here Now got was a direct result of this. The the critics didn't want to be on the wrong side of history. Ironically. Yeah, they'd critiqued the wrong album. <laughs> yep. So Q gave it three out of five, and David Kavanagh on the lyrics said, they scan, they fill a hole, end of story. They say nothing much about anything. Which, well, he's got a point, but he misses the point. As you just said, you don't go to Oasis for the lyrical content. You go for how it makes you feel. You go for the euphoric, anthemic sound that it creates. So, miss the point there, mate. Yeah, I don't believe that Noel Gallagher is the bard of a generation. He He doesn't speak to me in that way. It's how the music makes you feel, and it uplifts you and it it takes you on a journey and yeah they they didn't get it david stubbs in melody maker said the album sounded labored and lazy and on this evidence oasis are a limited band they sound knackered i wrote the exact same part because that's a long old review yeah <laughs> i wrote the exact same part of that it's like, you know just give it two years mate and then you'll figure out how you really feel <laughs> I mean, Rolling Stone's uh, John Viederhorn um, was much more positive and thought the album showed a bold leap forward that displays significant musical and personal growth. And I absolutely agree with that, that 
Definitely Maybe was raw. It was the album of where they came from. So that they are, you know, they were lads on the doll in Burnage who had nothing else to lose and they played their songs as loud as they could and absolutely balled out. What's the story isn't that album. What's the story is we've developed our craft and we have more to us than just being rock and roll stars. We we have hearts behind it. Yep. I think you're absolutely right, but I think perhaps in the minds of the critics, at least, when they were initially reviewing this album, that progression was a bit too rapid. This is only much less than 18 months after Definitely Maybe had been released. So it's a big change from that to come to this. So whilst I don't agree with a lot of the things that you've just read out, I can understand where they come from. Uh, Yeah, I don't agree with it, but I can understand where it comes from. Yeah, it's a funny thing that after only one album, they had created a template that people expected them to fit into. And when they tried to break out of it, they were critiqued. And the funny thing is, is that unfortunately, they regressed into the template. So this is a really, really good point. And don't worry, guys, we're coming to him. (laughs) That's a really good point that having expanded and grown and tried something different on the second album, perhaps because of that backlash or perhaps because of the drugs or the sales. Or everything. Or a combination of all those things, exactly. Perhaps they seem to get scared to progress even further. And so they tried to just do more of the same and amplify it. We've spoken about P here now before. Now, it's ironic to me that all of their later albums, none of which are very good, but they all tried to do something different musically. They all tried to introduce new influences, and it was never going to recreate this. It's just a shame to me that, that something that was so definitive of a time was so short-lived, I guess. Yeah. And maybe that's just they go hand-in-hand, hand, those things. Yeah, the, they captured lightning in a bottle, and they were never able to recreate it. Yeah, so one of the great lost moments in British music is in the aftermath of Noel Gallagher recording Let Forever Be with uh, the Chemical Brothers, there was talk of them having a much more expansive dance sound. And I, I, I certainly, at the time, was very excited by that concept, by that idea, because Let Forever Be is a fucking banger. It is. And it seemed like they were going to come back and expand their sound. And unfortunately, what whilst they tried different things, they always couldn't help themselves but go back to Template because Template was safe. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, shall we get on to Nobby McGee? I think we should, yeah. So he's got slightly more to say about this album than he did about Great Escape, but not a great deal, to be honest with you. So Robert Criscow initially criticised Oasis for their phony Beatlemania. Oh, look at me. I know the clash. I'm punk honest. Fuck off. (laughs) He also said, give them credit for wanting it all and yet another Beatles connection, playing guitars. Fuck does that mean? (sighs) I ain't finished yet. He gave notable mentions to She's Electric and Roll With It. Yeah, well done, dickhead. The two fucking <laughs> worst songs on the album. <laughs> oh, so you've got you've got a shoehorn reference to the Clash in there. You've got 
Because you're reviewing a British band, so you know the clash. Quite. He's a, well, another word beginning with C, but I'm not going to say that on air. A Charlie. (laughs) (laughs) A curmudgeonly chap. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I mean, I think we've said all we need to say about the legacy. Yeah, I think so. Best song, worst song, I guess. Okay. Do you want to, as I led on um, on Blur, do you want to lead on this? Then? Yeah, no problem. So there's going to be no surprises here. The worst song is She's Electric. It's disposable and it's out of place. I never liked it and I never will. And the best song, what else could it be? It's Champagne Supernova. I love Some Might Say. I love Morning Glory. I love Don't Look Back in Anger. But Champagne Supernova just it transcends everything else on this album, as we've already said. So short and sweet for me. There you go. What about you? Okay, so I will start with my worst song. I think it's probably Hey Now. It's a bit bloated, it's a bit meh. So I have struggled with my best song, and I'm gonna go with something I am gonna unusually not go with the same song as you. Don't look back in anger. It's a belter. It's perfect. Yeah, fair enough. I can see why you've come to that decision. I, I felt differently, but um, but they're both great songs. They are both really good songs. Um, I think it's time we got to scoring, Kev. I think it is. Okay, so it was your choice, this wasn't it? It was my choice. So you go first on Great Escape and second on Morning Glory. So okay, off you go. Okay, so as we as we said. It's a very sclerotic album. It doesn't work as a collection of, of songs. I feel it's bloated. The, there is a lot on there that doesn't need to be on there. It has, like, the Universal, as I said, is a absolute high point, and it's one of the, the best points of Blur's recording career. So that has to be taken into consideration. But there's a lot of shite on there. Well, not necessarily shy, just a lot of songs that I could not name you a lyric or a hook or anything from them. They've just passed me by like the the blandest music. And like I'm sorry to say that because I love Damon Albarn, but they they really didn't grab me. So I'm gonna come down with a five out of ten. Okay. I'm gonna say some very similar things here. I've described this as a real curate's egg of an album. Mm-hmm. How can you have something as poignant, as moving as the universal, and then have something, well, follow it up. The next, very next track, something as grating and cringingly campy as Mr. Robinson's Quango. And then later on, you've got something as, as just tacky as Arnold saying. This definitely isn't as strong as either the album that preceded it or the album that followed it. That's nothing controversial to say, and you've just said pretty much the same. And it certainly didn't deserve the initial praise that was levelled at it. You know, 12 out of 10, piss off. But neither did it deserve the opprobrium that has been levied at it since then. The opposite to Morning Glory. It also has a lot more to say than Morning Glory. Yeah. And we've talked about what we go to Oasis for and what we go to Blur for. So that's not a criticism of either, but anyway. This album is better than it has become remembered as being, but it isn't great by any stretch of the imagination. Six out of ten. That's a fair score. So I don't think we're far off there, are we? Between no. Us. All right. Morning Glory. Did I go first? You do indeed. Okay. 
There was a time many years ago that I would have cried heresy to anyone that even dared to suggest that What's a Story More Than Glory wasn't the greatest work of art <laughs> ever produced by humankind. That's how important this album was to my youth. Yeah. Okay. With the benefit of time, with the benefit of coming back to it after many years, clearly it is not without flaws. There's a lot of variety here. You've got classic Oasis bangers. You've got ballads. You've got throwaway poppy songs, if that's what you're in it for. So there's a lot to go at. It nears perfection at times. But as we've said, there's weaker moments and there's two songs on the album that I don't really like. It's almost opposite to The Great Escape, as I mentioned, that it deserves neither its initial lukewarm criticism nor the revisionist reverence that has been bestowed upon it. It's good. It's really good. But it's far from perfect. It's not even the best Oasis album, let's be honest, because that is definitely maybe seven out of 10. That's where I'm going. Seven out of 10. Okay. So, as you say, it's not a perfect album. And I very much in the uh, schoolyard wars <laughs> of the time when you when you had to pick a band oh, I... um, between the two. And I was very much on the Oasis side of the camp. I would have gone to battle for the Gallagher brothers at the time. <laughs> but looking back on it now, it is a flawed album. There are songs on there that aren't great. There's two filler songs. You know, as much as I as I say that I'd like to hear the full, and obviously have subsequently heard the full Swamp song, you're already two songs down. And then there's some meat and potato stuff that's a bit trudging. So it's it's not the it's not the perfect album I thought it was when I was 14, 15, but it's still got great moments on it. So I'm gonna come down fairly similar to you, but I'm gonna give it a little more. And that maybe that's nostalgia, maybe it's whatever you want to call it, seven and a half out of ten. Seven and a half out of ten. So Kevin thinks this album is just as good as Lou Reed's Transformer. <laughs> Both have very soft uh, places <laughs> in my heart. No, that's that was a cheap shot. I'm sorry. Uh, no, <laughs> fair enough. It's one. Morning Glory's one. 14 and a half to 11. I think we knew that was going to be the case. I've, I've, we did. We did. I stand by what I said about Great Escape. It is no be here now. It does not deserve the levels of criticism that have been levied at it, but it is very flawed. It's not awful. It's average. Yeah, exactly. If we were doing Blur against Morning Glory, then it would be a very different result. Well, and that's that's the thing. It's a shame for, I mean, obviously we get to pick the clashes, but in terms of the albums up against each other, if you, I'd say what would be a more fair, a more fair fight is if you had Great Escape up against Be Here Now, really. <laughs> yeah. Because... Because they're both they're both very flawed albums that are bloated and don't really understand what they're trying to be. Although Great Escape would still have won based on the scores. We've yeah, made. would have. Um, <laughs> because because Be Here Now is terrible, and we haven't even got on to Standing on the Shoulders of Giants. No, we never Fuck will. Me. No, <laughs> no. I think I think we should. No. <laughs> I can't do that album. just for Little James. <laughs> no, God, no. Uh, Okay, well, that's enough of that. That's enough of Blur versus Oasis. Oasis won the most important battle there was, which is the album clash. 
<laughs> yes. All right. So what's next? My choice, I think. It is your choice. So what are we doing? Okay. So we're doing Britpop season, but I'm going to stretch mm-hmm. the interpretation of Britpop pretty much as far as I can because it's our show and fuck you. <laughs> so I'm going right back to the start of the decade. Oh, And I am going to do two albums which blended together the indie style with mm-hmm. what was really kicking off at the time, dance music, Acid House. So from 1990, I'm going to be taking us through Pills, Thrills and Belly Aches by the Happy Mondays. And Kev, you know what it's going to be. What are you going to be taking us through? I'm guessing it may well be Screamadelica. It is Screamadelica by Primal Scream from 1991. There you go. Wow. Very excited to go through both these albums. Me too. So Happy Mondays, Pills, Thrills and Belly Aches versus Primal Scream, Screamadelica. That's what you need to listen to for the next clash. Before then, no, Kev, how can people keep in touch with us? please so um you may choose to go on twitter and you may see a hateful former tv presenter decide to tell a world-class olympic gymnast that she's a shithouse for not wanting to break her own neck don't mention him again for sake i can't help it no he can't help it that's the fucking problem simone biles is a fucking queen exactly so yeah if you want to check us out on twitter it's at clash album if you like quality content that doesn't um, involve us having to reference a fucking smug bellend who got sacked from CNN, you can check us out on Instagram at Clash Album. Or if you're resolutely old school, you can check us out on the email via albumclash at gmail.com. Boom. There you go. So as, as Kev said, and as we've said a few times, the stuff on Insta is done by Sam. You know what Sam sounds like now because she was on our bonus pod I genuinely think the stuff on Insta gets better and better as we go. Very much so. And uh, it's so, so much appreciated. A, that Sam does it, and B, that you guys are responding to it. As always, give us a review, give us a rating, tell your mates about us, spread the word. Thank you very, very much for listening. It means the world to us. Just a quick reminder again, for the next clash, you need to listen to the Happy Mondays, Pills, Thrills and Belly Aches, and Primal Screams, Screamadelica. Brilliant. Okay. Thanks very much. We'll see you next time. I've been Tim. I've been Kev. Take care. Ta-da. Ta-da. Bye.